Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm. And on today's show, I am thrilled to welcome in David Scalzetti, Senior Director of Regulatory Products and Strategy at the Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE, as part of a two-part program looking at the impact of data on compliance. In the first part of our interview, David will look at how data can help support your firm's compliance program in any number of different areas, including portfolio management, liquidity, valuation, and fund reporting. In our headline section, we look at Commissioner Ueda's second term in a recent challenge from SIFMA regarding the Department of Labor's new retirement security rule proposal. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind, where we look at an interesting characteristic of the American bison and what it can teach us about the upcoming busy season for compliance officers. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, Commissioner Mark Ueda was recently sworn in for his second term as a commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Commissioner Ueda began his first term as an SEC commissioner on June 30th, 2022, after being nominated by President Joe Biden and confirmed by the U.S. Senate for a term expiring in 2023. In June of last year, 2023, President Biden nominated Commissioner Ueda for a term expiring in 2028, and the U.S. Senate confirmed Commissioner Ueda on December 20th, 2023. Quote, Commissioner Ueda is a dedicated public servant who cares deeply about our capital markets, said Chair Gary Gensler. Quote, I'm looking forward to our continued work together in furtherance of the SEC's mission to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. End quote. Commissioner Ueda then said, quote, I am grateful to have the privilege of continuing to serve the American public alongside my fellow colleagues at the Commission. End quote. It's worth mentioning that Commissioner Ueda has been a frequent critic of the SEC's rulemaking process under Chair Gensler. His views, more often than not, often align with those of Commissioner Hester Peirce. Commissioner Ueda most notably was a critic of the rulemaking process during a speech at the Asian Pacific American Bar Association in 2022, where he criticized the SEC for its 30-day comment period for many recent rule proposals, noting that comment periods were sometimes truncated when they included major holidays. Recent comment periods were further complicated by the fact that the SEC was often issuing multiple parallel proposals affecting the same stakeholders at about the same time. And added, he, he then went on to add that, you know, quote, these factors raised the concern that such rule proposals did not afford interested persons a reasonable and meaningful opportunity to participate. End quote. In our next headline, SIFMA and the SIFMA Asset Management Group, or AMG, urged the Department of Labor to withdraw its latest version of the Retirement Security Rule proposal and accompanying prohibited transaction exemption amendments that would expand the activities resulting in a person being deemed, quote, an investment advice fiduciary. The proposed rule would change the regulatory definition of an investment advice fiduciary for purposes of Title I and Title II of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or also known as ERISA. In a comment letter, SIFMA criticized the proposal as not being tailored to the Department of Labor's goals based on an analysis 
analysis that it is, quote, incomplete and flawed and inconsistent with prior circuit the, with the prior circuit court decision holding against the Department of Labor. Further, SIFMA and the SIFMA AMG argued that the Department of Labor has, quote, provided no competent evidence that the proposal is necessary, end quote, or that, quote, the current exemption is not working, end quote. The commenters went on to argue that SEC regulation best interests, the DOL prohibited transaction exemption 2020-02, and the NAIC's best interest in to provide more flexibility in practices and firm arrangements that provide institutional investors with substantial choice in the marketplace while still getting the benefit of financial professional uh, of a financial professional looking out for their best interest. SIFMA and the SIFMA AMG argued that the extensive changes demanded by this new rule could hinder individual investors from obtaining diverse financial advice and choices. And it kind of suggested, just given the tone of SIFMA's letter, that there's an industry willingness to potentially challenge the DOL in court again should it proceed with the proposal in its current form. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I'm incredibly pleased to welcome on a first-time guest to the podcast to talk about one of the most interesting and opportunistic areas of compliance that I see out there today, and that's as it relates to data, and specifically the kinds of data that legal practitioners and chief compliance officers and others in the space can use to help better administer their firm's compliance programs, to better track the different uh, the different operations and business-related practices of the firm. We see data come up in so many different aspects of how a firm ultimately should think about um, its firm operations and its compliance program. Um, but we're also seeing the, the marriage between that part of how firms use data uh, along with the portfolio management side. And as we'll talk about today, maybe things related to valuation and liquidity. And so I'm incredibly pleased to be joined by David Scalzetti, who uh, works with ICE Data Services. David joined ICE in 2014 to really help lead the entire regulatory products initiatives. ICE stands for the Intercontinental Exchange. He is a, a CFA. He's got over 20 years of experience with very strong structured products and regulation. And in the course of his experience and in his capacity currently at ICE Data Services, David and his team help monitor regulations such as uh, Basel III, FRTB, MIFID II, liquidity regulations, uh, other SEC proposals, and just the broader set of changes that we see constantly you know, coming out as it relates to the Investment Company Act, as well as uh, various tax regulations. He has a BA in economics and philosophy from Binghamton University, easy for me to say. And uh, again, very, very excited to have David on the show. Thank you so much for being here and very excited to dive into the conversation with you. Okay, thank you again for hosting me, Patrick. I just want to open by saying that the opinions I express are my own and do not represent that of ICE or any other organization. And thank you for hosting me, Patrick. I'm excited to have this conversation as well. So, as we talked about during the lead-in, you know, one of the things that I think would be really interesting, just to kind of set the table for a lot of our listeners here, and you've got a very friendly audience uh, here that we'll be talking with. David, they love uh, data, and they especially love data that they can use uh, to help better run their firm's compliance programs. But where we see 
and I guess maybe have seen even a focus from the regulators on the use of data over the last several years is really in a couple uh, key areas. I know some of which we'll kind of dive into today. And one of the items that that you know you and I were talking about even in advance of the show was around valuation. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and even if you just do a quick search in the examina- in the 2024 examination priorities report from the division of exams you'll see you'll see valuation m- mentioned nine different times in in a number of different areas there and and what's interesting is you know th- that covers both you know certainly mutual fund you know advisors um, but not just mutual fund advisors really advisors of all shapes and sizes and and those that may be managing other types of even you know illiquid assets like uh, a private fund or in lots of other areas and so I guess just to kind of set the table and think broadly about the uh, uh, kind of topic of valuation and specifically how data related to to valuation, how that has continued to evolve and now uh, really comes comes into play where where that valuation data can be used in a way that's you know significantly impacts a firm's compliance program. So on on the fixed income and data services side of the business, ICE has long been involved in providing valuation data and related analytics, uh, mostly on the fixed income side, but also across equities and derivatives markets as well. We also offer execution capabilities. But what we've seen growing over the last you know, five to 10 years is, as you said, Patrick, an an increase in expectations on our clients and not just on the asset management side, but across the board on having a better understanding of uh, the the valuations and evaluations that they leverage from providers such as ourselves, as well as just a more comprehensive understanding of the analytics that they use in their day-to-day operations. Yeah, no, that's that, that's great. And, and I think it's that kind of increase in focus on the obligations that are going to be on the advisors that that are going to be providing in many cases the valuation assessments of certain types of investments that ultimately of course are going to impact the fees that they charge and and how those investments are being held we've certainly see seen an increase of that even in some of the different uh, examinations that are uh, either mutual fund or other private fund advisors have have seen, but I, I guess even just to kind of you know continue that point about you know the the various ways that valuation even kind of comes into a firm's compliance program. I'd love to hear from you. Tell me about some of the different ways that the data that you're using and the types of services that you may be providing advisors, how they're using that data right now to kind of better ensure compliance with their portfolio management or other related business operations. Sure. So so taking a small step back, in order for ICE to provide an evaluation, a good faith estimate of what an instrument is 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 worth or what is reflective of its current market value. We've been a major consumer of 
underlying input data and analytics information. Uh, so collecting bids and quotes and trade data and, and other information that is very useful to understanding the valuation. Historically, most clients just want to be answer key. Like, you know, I don't care what the inputs are, just tell me what your good faith estimate of that fair value prices. But as we've evolved over time as an industry and the regulators have evolved, you've seen more and more uh, requests from the regulators to better understand what went into that valuation and how they get comfortable um, using a particular valuation when in a lot of cases, the underlying input data could lead to a range of good faith estimates. So what we've noticed and what we've been focusing on is repurposing a lot of that input data into metadata that is useful for whether it's an IPV team or a compliance officer or someone in regulation or reporting to better understand how that how that evaluation was derived and what inputs went into it without having to consume millions and millions of ticks of of pricing information. I'll just add, you know, I think the culmination of this was with the SEC's adoption of Rule 2A5, which governs funds, good faith estimations of fair value, and really provided a lot of principles-based requirements of their expectations of what funds need to do, which in my view is a really best practice in what all, any type of entity can and should be doing with regards to understanding how they came up with their with their fair value. Yeah, that's one. Thank you for that. I, I do think that actually does a really great job of kind of summarizing a lot of the different ways that we have seen the rise of data specifically in the valuation space become more and more important to a firm's compliance program. But let's let's dig in a little bit on some of what you just talked about at the end there with regard to SEC Rule 2A5. Let's talk about, I mean, you, you gave a, a little bit of a high-level you know, thumbnail of, of what it is there, but let's talk about the rule specifically and the kinds of, like you were kind of describing, the kinds of you know, obligations or requirements that are going to be placed on advisors as a result of 2A5, and, and what are the ways that they're using data to help better make sure that they're staying in compliance with the rule? Sure. And I think there's a lot to unpack there, Patrick. So uh, I think we can probably spend a little bit of time on this. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think starting off, it ranges from understanding the methodologies. Because as I said early on, there's the, the, the input data can lead to different conclusions of what the fair value estimate of a particular security is. And I'm not talking about an on-the-run 10-year treasury or you know the five-year Apple bond. 
that 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 trades a hundred times an hour. Uh, right. But 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 some of these instruments that trade more periodically, or there are different market makers that assign you know different bid valuations, or you know will quote securities differently in the market. So at a point in time, you can have input prices that lead to that lead to different conclusions of what the appropriate fair value estimate is. So I think a large principle coming out of 285, which again to me is the best practice, is do you understand if you leverage a provider, do you understand their methodology on how they're they're taking those inputs and consolidating it into a single evaluation estimation? And and moreover do you agree with that with that methodology yeah yeah let's let uh, that's a great point and i'm glad that you phrased it in the way that you did because i think that's important for all of our listeners to really let let resonate which is this idea that you've got this rule you know sec rule 2a5 that is specific to you know the investment company act and so it's gonna it's gonna impact specifically advisors to investment companies or you know mutual funds right but but i think what you said there is really critical because it's that's something that's going to be important for uh mutual fund advisors but really for any advisor to understand if you have hired a third-party service, or if you're doing assessments on your own, you've really got to understand the methodology that is being employed in order to come up with the the quote-unquote fair valuation of that specific instrument or or security. Is that essentially what what you're saying? That they're really like, yes, this is exactly. a rule, but really, all, all advisors should be paying attention to it. I think that's a general best practice for anyone that leverages an independent assessment of fair value. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, for those folks then that need to come into compliance with 2A5, you know, what what are are there services that are going to be able uh, that they can leverage that are going to certainly employ the, the significant use of, of data for the advisor to be able to better track and, and manage their compliance within that rule? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'd say since the since the adoption of 2A5, we've made a series of enhancements based on speaking to our clients to really just understand what we could do to help make their compliance workflows better. And I'm gonna sound like a broken record, but I continue to stress and firmly believe that 285 is an outline for best practices, whether you're whether you're a 40 act fund or or not. But I would say there's four categories of metadata and supporting data that we focused on to really help clients better understand where their evaluations are coming from. We've already touched on the methodology, being transparent around it. Uh, we've always had transparency into it. We focus more on ease of access to, to the information, so just making it easier for clients to access it. And 
Some that's important to understand, especially when you look at the breadth of instruments that clients hold. There are very different methodologies for how you value an exchange-traded equity from an OTC equity, from a fund, from a corporate bond to a muni bond to a securitized product. So each right. one of those has their own methodology, and it's really, I think, imperative on a user to understand the methodology and confirm that it's appropriate for that asset type. So pillar one is definitely methodology. And I'll just go over the other three and then we can sort of do more of a deep dive wherever you want, Patrick. But uh, the other three categories that we've been focusing on are doing back testing and reporting sort of at a high level. How do you get comfortable that the evaluations are reflective of, uh, of market prices and quotations? So backtesting is a huge piece. Challenge information as being as large of a provider as we are in the number of clients we have, we get a lot of challenges on our prices. And more often than not, the challenges aren't a function of being concerned about a particular valuation, but just hitting some trigger event that may be completely market norm, like the price moved by more than one or two percent, regardless of whether that's appropriate for what happened in the market or not. But understanding challenges and having transparency into that. And then finally, just broader transparency into market data and unchanged prices and things like that. So again, the four categories to me for around valuation focus on methodology, backtesting, challenge and statistics, and uh, underlying transparency and metadata. Yeah. And, and I, I do think, again, that you know, if you are a firm, and no, no matter how large or small, if you are employing valuation practices or you've hired someone else to employ that, that is performing valuation services on your behalf, being able to work through those different items that you just referenced in a way where, again, you as a firm can can credibly say that you understand them as it relates to your own business and operations and the types of securities and instruments uh, that you're going to be buying for the firm's clients. That's going to put you in the best position possible if and when you know the SEC comes knocking, so that you can defend ultimately the 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 valuations that were performed for the securities that are in your clients' portfolios. I, I I completely agree. And to me, backtesting transparency has been one of the biggest uptakes that we've seen from our clients. So one way to think about valuation or our evaluation process, uh, especially in the fixed income markets where there is, you know, maybe not a central limit order book that has, you know, the depth readily available. One way to think about an evaluation, and we offer 
what we call CEP, our continuous evaluated price. So we have an event-driven methodology that as soon as a new piece of information comes out, whether that's a new trade or a new quote or a change in a benchmark, we take a new price on that security. So things that have a lot of events through the day, we may tick thousands of prices every single day and, you know, multiple times a minute or, you know, even close to every second for things that uh, warrant that type of activity, which is not most of the fixed income market because they're not equities, but but others where you know uh, there's more there's less periodic events happening uh, and less availability of market data. But effectively, every single price that comes out, you can think of as an estimate of fair value that then at some point subsequently there's going to be a trade or an execution of that security which then at that exact point in time assuming that transaction or execution is an arm's length transaction that is the 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 fair value price so at that exact point in time so to me even the fixed income markets have an answer key. Now, the periodicity of that answer key is going to vary instrument by instrument, but that has afforded us the ability to treat all of our valuations just prior to a transaction and compare those prices and measure the error. So, so ultimately, produce a backtesting report that isn't necessarily QCIP by QCIP, but aggregated up to a portfolio or an asset class level or sub-asset class level to get comfortable. What is the error in your in the good faith estimation process? Yeah, that's really interesting, and I'm I'm glad that you talked about the the process that you all have kind of used as it relates to that, because I can certainly see how if I was an advisor that had hired a third party to help perform those services, and certainly for those listeners on the show, you know that 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 would be a really good takeaway to to check in and make sure that any service provider that, that you've hired to perform the same or similar services is in fact following that type of process i i would i can absolutely see why that would get them a little bit more comfortable that, that the data that they're getting is again gonna um uh, continue to to keep them kind of in compliance and on and on the right track one of the other areas i think you know valuation is is still absolutely one of the largest areas where we see the kind of impact of data and compliance and, and the marriage kind of with compliance. But I think another one too is on the liquidity side mm-hmm. of the house. And certainly people take very different definitions of uh, sometimes what could be considered a liquid versus an illiquid asset. And I know that even, you know, during exams of other registrants, I've seen the the staff uh, occasionally take slightly different positions on what's considered liquid versus illiquid. Um, but just generally speaking, again, for, for maybe some of our listeners who may not be super familiar with 
how data can potentially help you and your firm, right? Uh, and and even the compliance program better understand data and some of the issues around around liquidity. Uh, t- talk to me about kind of some of the data that you see in the liquidity space and how that data can be used to better enhance a firm's compliance program. Yeah. So uh, liquidity, as you said, is a super interesting but complicated topic. If you go to 10 SMEs, you're going to get 10 different definitions or calculation methodologies and and ranging from people who want to understand, you know, full depth of order books to people who want to just take more of a qualitative view and say liquidity is there until I need it. Right. But we've taken a position that a lot of that input data that we have that goes into our evaluation methodologies is also valuable to help solve for liquidity in a systematic and measured approach. So the way we think about liquidity, and and we use a fairly standard definition, it's just the ability to exit a position without having a significant impact on the price. Um, So when we think about liquidity and when we designed our liquidity indicator service, we view liquidity as a tripod, volume, time, and price. How much do I have to sell? How long do I have to sell it? And how much of a price haircut am I willing to assume for the cost of immediacy? Because, you know, uh, as, as you mentioned during my introduction, I come from a trading background. And my mentor, when I first started trading, used to tell me, there's no bad bonds, just bad prices. So <laughs> every bond is liquid at some price. Sure. So it's not good to just say to not have a methodology or an approach that considers all three of those elements, volume, time, and price. So then when you're thinking about advisors that are in the space where liquidity is going to be so important to the, the services that they provide, whether that that could be in the mutual fund space would certainly be one that I can think of where there might be some different rules around around liquidity where you may need to be obviously very cognizant of of those items that that you were just referencing but just even more generally right for even uh, uh, non you know mutual fund advisors how can they leverage data and even some of the services, you know, again that that the you and uh, and others may be providing other restaurants in the space now to again help kind of enhance what what it is that they're doing inside their compliance programs and the types of advisory services that that they're providing clients. Sure, sure. So especially outside the mutual fund space, where there are some pretty prescriptive rules around SEC Rule 22E4, which effectively does require the classification of securities into currently one of four categories, although there's a proposal out there to revise that to three categories. Clients can consume basic liquidity metrics like scores and 
uh, and and just other basic information around the liquidity of an of of an instrument. However, will we see it as emerging as a best practice, whether as a result of 22E4 and maybe some Basel III requirements, or I should say Basel 2.5 requirements, like uh, the liquidity coverage ratio, which has a uh, LRM requirement, liquid and readily marketable. There are expectations that liquidity is more assessed on a quantitative basis. So, what we make easily consumable to a client is of that tripod, volume, time, and price. Treat two of those as an input and ask us to solve for the third. So the way most of our clients use the data, at least in the United States, because I do think there's a cultural perspective between the Europeans and the Americans on, on this, which I can speak to in a second. They have a volume that they hold in the portfolio. They may have a volume that they reasonably anticipate that they're going to have to transact. They have an idea of, you know, how much of a price impact they're willing to assume and will give us those two as inputs and ask us to solve for this volume and this market price impact, how long will it take me to sell to sell that position? So two clients can have the same position, but if one has 5X the volume that they may have to sell than another one, it's gonna take more time to work out of that position than it would than someone that only own 20%. So the ability to consider portfolio-specific input parameters is where I see liquidity continuing to migrate towards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And you also did touch on something there that I did, I did want to flush out a little bit, which is you, know, you mentioned kind of the difference in the approach that certain managers may take in the United States versus certain managers in in Europe. Kind of what, you know, flush that concept out for me a a little bit and ultimately talk to me about the the importance of some of the differences there. Sure. So starting in the US, let me focus initially specifically on Rule 22-4, which currently has funds classify their portfolio holdings into one of four categories, highly liquid, moderately liquid, less liquid, or illiquid. And those categories are directly a function of how long it takes to liquidate uh, and or convert to cash that position. So they're very prescriptive definitions and they're all time-based. So most of our 22 E4 clients ask us to place it into one of those categories. So they're basically giving us a market impact and a, and a volume that they expect to transact and then asking us to solve for which SEC bucket it falls to, which, as I said, is a function of time. When I think about our usage clients and some of the rules that have come out of Europe, namely the liquidity stress testing guidelines for usage and AIFs, our European clients are generally more interested in solving for price impact than time. 
So for example, they may, they still have the known volume of how much they have to sell, but they'll ask us questions to solve more like, how much more would it cost me to sell this position in one day versus three days versus seven days? and look at that cost difference and you know how that varies across their their different funds or even their different holdings and constituents of their of their funds and then liquidity stress testing is also something interesting that we launched several years after the launch of our liquidity indicator service largely as a result of um of the rules coming out of ESMA. And I am super proud of this because I think this is one of the most exciting developments in the space. But having that, the data that we have access to, we've gone back to known historical liquidity events like the 2008 global financial crisis, more recently, the COVID pandemic, Greek trading halts, the the Eurozone contagion, and really just have built a small suite of historical liquidity events and have painstakingly gone to look at individual data on what happened to bid-ask spreads during that event? What happened to observed trading volumes? What happened to uh, price volatility from the prior to the onset of that liquidity event towards the peak of that crisis? And actually measured hundreds of dial settings based on looking at different combinations of asset classes and regions. And then, then just offer kinds of the ability of saying, okay, today I have a liquidity profile. We're in a relatively calm market. My portfolio may be highly liquid today, but do I know what the liquidity profile of my fund looks like if the events of you know March and April 2020 were to happen again today? And that's now something because of that extensive data calibration that we've done, a client can request that with a click of a button. That's incredible. And, and I mean, I think that would be uh, very, very, very valuable information for, for again, for, for any manager really to be able to better understand. I mean, you, you hear folks talk about whether it's in their marketing or just it's in their the meetings that they're having with clients and, you know, other uh, where they're going to employ a particular type of strategy and it's going to provide, you know, upside potential versus downside protection, right? And all these other different things. And they talk all this stuff about, again, they're, they're going to implement this kind of strategy, but without without necessarily, you know, having additional data or other information that they can use to substantiate that claim to back it up to say, look, even against these, some of the most volatile market periods or other things and whatever else, like we're building your portfolio in a way that is going to continue to meet that even in periods of significant stress or volatility. I do think that that would be like really, really valuable for a manager to be able to see that and to be able to access that data and help use it to, and be able to use it to help instruct how they manage their clients' portfolios. And, and to just support what you just said. We've started seeing adoption of it, not because of a regulatory 
driver, but as a best practice to have that understanding of uh, stress testing the liquidity of their portfolio and just understanding because different portfolios have different sensitivities. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a portfolio that may become less liquid if a stressed environment happens again, but you do need to be aware that that's the case and have appropriate tools to manage that in case you start seeing those events happening again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, hearing you talk about that and again, I'd say the, more widespread kind of adoption that you're seeing there, even outside of the regulatory requirements for folks that may manage mutual funds or in, in other areas. It just makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you know, since since I've been in the investment management industry, I mean, you know, you mentioned a number of the events a, a few moments ago, right? But there have been enough of those kinds of significant events in incredibly volatile markets where I think if you're, you know, a, a fiduciary in, in every sense of the word and you're thinking about uh, the kinds of situations that you want to be able to help protect against, right, in the downside situations or uh, be in a position to maximize in the more uh, positive and, and opportunistic situations, having access to that type of data would just seem like something that, that would be absolutely in your in your own interest to go and try to get your hands on. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, you don't have to go back that far. Five, six years ago, none of these tools existed in the industry. I mean, you may have had an individual manager who built some in-house solution, but now there's multiple providers that have off-the-shelf solutions as a compliance officer or someone responsible for the oversight of the liquidity risk. Why wouldn't you want to have that data? Like more data is always going to be more valuable in making a better informed decision than sticking your finger in the air. Right. Right. Well, and it would give you the ability, again, even if I'm thinking about it in the sense of like, this is what we say, like we're this type of manager, we manage in this type of style. When I'm marketing or I'm advertising to clients, I'm gonna be able to meet these kind of mandates and I'm gonna be able to meet that. And, you know, again, like I, we just got done talking to an incredible person inside of the SEC, Christopher Mulligan, who works with the Division of Exams and did just a fantastic job of breaking down different parts of the the new SEC marketing rule, but what they're seeing in examinations. And one of, of course, the biggest things that they're looking for during those exams is the ability for folks to substantiate the claims that they make and, and how they're managing and, and other stuff. And so, again, I, it's not directly, you know, like apples to apples, but you can even see where having access to that data could ultimately help better support you in the actual the actual management of the portfolio, but certainly in the the claims that you may make or the statements that you may make or the positioning that you may uh, uh, kind of stake out as to how it's going to perform in periods of market stress. 
Well, I, I I think we could we could we could probably geek out. I know you and I are are also friendly audiences when it comes to the the kind of marriage uh, between data and compliance. I know what what I'm incredibly excited about, and and for those listening to this show, you get maybe a little bit of an appetizer. This is this is only the part one version. Uh, the impact of data on compliance. We're going to do another show with David here shortly, where we're really going to be digging into other areas where data significantly impacts compliance, especially kind of in the area of some of the newer regulations that have come out. So we'll, we'll certainly dive into that. But, you know, David, thank you. Thank you very, very much uh, for taking the time to uh, chat with us today and talk about some of these really important topics like valuation and like liquidity and getting a better understanding for you know, how you look at uh, those uh, about the data that impacts both of those areas and ultimately how it can positively impact your firm's compliance program. David, thank you so much for chatting with us today on the impact of data on compliance part one and look forward to having you here on the second show and we can dive into some of those other regulations. Thank you. The final part of today's show features another segment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents the tip of the cap to all those editorial artists from years past and will often include a unique perspective or nuanced take and highlight how it relates to the investment management industry and our securities compliance family. In today's What's On My Mind and on this cold, cold winter day in the Midwest, I am reminded of the great American bison. You see, bison are one of the few animals, if maybe not the only animal, known to turn into a snowstorm rather than run away from it. Unlike other animals, bison turn toward and often charge into a snowstorm rather than run away because they know that by facing the storm head on, it limits the amount of time it takes to weather the storm and to overcome the challenges it faces. Their courage on the American Plains not only exemplifies resilience, but perhaps offers a small lesson for many of the compliance officers and legal practitioners listening to this podcast. We we are all faced with many challenges day after day, moment after moment, personally and professionally. And as as we look ahead to the upcoming crazy season of regulatory filings, annual compliance reviews, and any number of other countless items you are tasked with when running your firm's compliance program, the symbolism of the majestic bison heading directly into the storm is a good reminder that the best way to often navigate life's toughest challenges is through. And just like the bison, the compliance family listening to this podcast functions much better and stronger with a herd of support around us. Whatever storm you are facing and wherever you find yourself in life, we are all in this together. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, David Scalzetti, for sharing his keen insights regarding the impact of data on compliance. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 